This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Get Your Guide. If you're planning a trip and you are not sure what you want to do when you get there, Get Your Guide offers the best way to connect with your destination. You can make memories from all over the globe with these tours that are locally vetted and expertly curated. All kinds of variety based on whatever it is that you're into. So if it's food or nature or sports, you can immerse yourself in any of these things on your next vacation. So just as some examples, there's a New York City deli food tour or whitewater rafting on the Grand Canyon. This is not just in the United States either. There is a chocolate and patisserie tour of Paris or a pasta making class in Rome. All of this sounds so awesome. You can discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at getyourguide.com. Again, that is getyourguide.com. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any of you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So this is part two of our Pulitzer stories. It's not as necessary to have listened to the first part as it often is if we're doing a two-parter. Uh, in that first part, we covered his early life, a rather shocking event that happened in St. Louis that led him to move to New York, and his rivalry with Hearst. Uh, so those are all important parts of his story, and I encourage you to hear it. But if you didn't hear it and you don't want to go back, I actually think you're going to be fine today. Uh, all you really need to know is that by the time we're picking up this story, which is in the early 1900s, Pulitzer was already a very well-established newsman. His papers were known throughout certainly the U.S. and I would say other parts of the world. His rivalry with Hearst had kind of already been established. Uh, and so we're just kind of picking up with him being probably one of the most famous people in the news industry. So early 20th century, where we're picking up, Joseph Pulitzer was advocating for the U.S. to have a school of journalism. In 1904, he wrote, quote, Our republic and its press will rise or fall together. An able, disinterested, public-spirited press with trained intelligence to know the right and courage to do it can preserve that public virtue without which popular government is a sham and a mockery. A cynical, mercenary, demagogic press will produce in time a people as base as itself. 
the power to mold the future of the Republic will be in the hands of the journalists of future generations. So it's clear that he had a strong sense of the influence the press could wield, and he thought that we needed to ensure journalists were taught how to hold power to account. But of course, he himself had always used his platform as a publisher to slant coverage as he saw fit to align with his own political leanings. Yeah, that whole thing makes it sound like he's like, I want an unbiased press so that they can write really good biased articles. I'm not sure. Except for my one. Sure, yeah. But because of that bias, late in his life, Pulitzer found himself on the receiving end of an indictment from the federal government. And that's because the world published what was positioned as an expose of a payment from the U.S. government to the new Panama Canal Company, a payment that was problematic, according to the report. So we should also mention, as we get into this story, because it is big, that New York World was not the only paper to cover this story, and it was not the only one to speculate about the specifics of this deal. But Pulitzer's staff was relentless, and it once again all began with politics. Specifically, this started with commentary on the campaign of William Howard Taft, who President Theodore Roosevelt wanted to be his successor to the office. Roosevelt had campaigned heavily for Taft, and Pulitzer's paper's coverage, which came out a month before the election in October of 1908, alleged that members of both Roosevelt's and Taft's families were making a large amount of money in the Panama Canal deal, The story started when William Nelson Cromwell, an attorney who worked for the president's chief advisor, filed a legal complaint that he was being blackmailed because of his involvement with the Panama Canal in the U.S. sale. But when the New York World found out about the filing, a reporter was assigned to find out more. That reporter asked around and found nothing, and then the matter was dropped until Cromwell's press agent, Jonas Whitley, showed up in the world's offices claiming that the article that was about to go to print was false. What? Yeah, there was no article about to go to print, and the paper staff told Whitley that they had not been able to verify anything and they were not running a story. This all gets a little convoluted, so come with us on this journey. Uh, Whitley, unprompted, then expounded on the nature of Cromwell's complaints to the world's editor. So that story, which Whitley essentially copy-edited as it was taken down, so he was directly telling the stenographer taking notes (laughs) what to put in it, ran in the world on October 3rd, 1908, and it read in part, quote, that the Democratic National Committee was considering the advisability of making a public statement that William Nelson Cromwell, in connection with Mr. Bunalveria, a French speculator, had formed a syndicate at the time when it was quite evident that the United States would take over the rights of the French bondholders in the Deliceps Canal, and that this syndicate included, among others, Charles P. Taft, brother of William H. Taft, and Douglas Robinson, brother-in-law of President Roosevelt. Other men, more prominent in the New York world of finance, were also mentioned. According to the story, these financiers invested their money because of a full knowledge of the intention of the government to acquire the French property at a price of about $40 million, and thus, because of alleged information from high government sources, were enabled to reap a rich profit, end quote. That whole thing was a quote in the paper. 
So this was basically saying that the French holders of the Panama Canal Company, which had been struggling financially, had sold it quietly to a number of American investors. And then those investors sold it to the U.S. government. Those investors were people connected directly to Roosevelt and Taft. And the whole thing was, according to the blackmailer, orchestrated by William Nelson Cromwell, an attorney who had worked for the president's chief advisor. So, of course, this would have been shady and was reported to show that Taft was corrupt and unfit to be president. Yeah, it's a little bit hard to follow. <laughs> but but that, that's the main takeaway, that it was trying to kind of smear Taft. So... We also need to note that entire Panama Canal deal and situation is really complex, and it went through a lot of shifts and negotiations for decades before this deal actually happened. And issues with its complexities did not end there. They even reached into the 20th century and were part of Jimmy Carter's campaign and presidency. But all of that is outside the scope of this episode. We're really trying to just focus on the press coverage. What you do need to know is that that initial company that was working on connecting the Atlantic and Pacific through Panama was headed by Ferdinand Deliceps. And when he was found guilty of misappropriating funds for the project and his company was having problems, a second company, Compagnie Nouvelle du Canal de Panama, or New Panama Canal Company, was formed. And that company is the one we're talking about that made that sale, and it's going to come up more in a moment. Cromwell's PR agent had also told the paper, after relaying the details of this blackmail attempt, that Mr. Cromwell would like to make a direct statement. He did this by phone and approved when the dictated statement was read back to him. The statement was a denial of any wrongdoing on his part. The story would have never made the papers had Cromwell not stirred all of this up, and soon it really spiraled, even though that initial legal complaint of blackmail he filed never went anywhere. He also never seemed to pursue it. There are still some questions about why Cromwell did any of this. Charles P. Taft was vehement in his denial that he had anything to do with the Panama Canal deal, Douglas Robinson refused to speak to the press. The New York World actually hired a member of British Parliament who was a lawyer to look into any details of the sale that they could find on the European side of the story. That lawyer went to Paris, but he found nothing, and he wrote a report back to the world that read, quote, I have never known in my lengthy experience of company matters any public corporation, much less one of such vast importance, having so completely disappeared and removed all traces of its existence as the new Panama Canal Company. This company, having purchased the assets of La Compagnie Universelle du Canal Interoceanique de Panama, the old or Deliceps Panama Canal Company, brought off the deal with the American government. So thorough has been its obliteration that only the United States government can now give information respecting the new company's transactions and the identity of the individuals who created it to effectuate this deal and who, for reasons best known to themselves, wiped it off the face of the earth when the deal was carried through. 
The stock, the British lawyer reported, had originally been registered. That would have meant that any transactions would have had to have been tracked. But then it was converted to bearer stock, which meant that no such records had to be maintained. It was like, at that point, privately owned, and you can sell anything to somebody else without having to report it. The company had been liquidated, but with no names attached to it to ascertain who had received any of the money. In addition to the monetary benefit from this sale, the World reported in a follow-up article that Cromwell had also managed to influence the signing of a concession, which granted California-based Union Oil a monopoly in the Canal Zone. That allowed the oil company to build a pipeline that would connect the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. That pipeline, per the world's account, was to run from the city of Panama to the city of Cologne on the Atlantic side. Union Oil was a subsidiary of Standard Oil, so the whole thing meant that Standard would just be unchallenged in the canal. And according to the world, quote, there have been rumors that at least one member of the Standard Oil group of capitalists was in the American syndicate, which is reported to have made a huge sum through the sale to the United States in 1904 for $40 million of the property of the French Panama Canal Company to William Nelson Cromwell. So there were allegations of multiple wrongdoings that were recounted and reiterated across multiple articles. Yeah, we have like... Americans secretly sold this property to the U.S. government and made a ton of money on it. And those same Americans owned uh, a portion of these oil companies that were also getting deals to have a monopoly in the area. Other papers picked up these stories that were running and reported on the reporting of the world, taking those reports as true. And then other papers picked those stories up. This became like a weird game of journalism telephone, as one paper would quote another paper as a source, but they were all hinging on the idea that the world had reported the story. So, for example, the Indianapolis News ran a story on October 20th, 1882, under the headline, Panama Secrets, that reported, quote, the Chicago Journal says that it is well known that somebody bought the stock of the defunct French Panama Canal Company for $12 million or less and sold it to the United States government for $40 million. And the Chicago paper declares further that it is not known to anybody outside the gang of speculators that reaped a rich harvest by playing on the patriotism of the American people how much of that $28 million went into the pockets of President Roosevelt's intimate friends who promoted the deal. We will get into how all this bad press impacted the election and the people involved right after a quick sponsor break. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, 
features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you someone who's developed a keen awareness of life's nonsense and found their way around it? Someone who zigs when the rest of the world zags? Someone who doesn't put up with life's yada yada? If you're nodding your head yes, then it might be time to check out Metro by T-Mobile. At Metro, there's not a yada yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada yada yada. Outsmarting yada yada means things like avoiding those surprise subscriptions. I definitely ordered a one-time Valentine present recently. And then I got an email thanking me for joining their subscription program. Not a thing I had even realized I was doing. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and not a yada yada. Helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. So you may or may not be surprised to learn that Taft won the election despite all of those damning articles in Pulitzer's papers and those of other publishers. And while initially Theodore Roosevelt had sort of ignored things because of the world's known Democratic leanings, when Republican-aligned papers started to run the same stories, he got really angry. And he started speaking out against newspapers that had run these stories and said that they, quote, habitually and as a matter of business, practice every mendacity known to man, and that they were far more dangerous to the country than corrupt politicians. He also asserted that the U.S. paid the French government and how that money was dispersed after that was not something that the U.S. government would have knowledge of. The New York World responded to Roosevelt's statement that there were discrepancies in the way details of the sale had been relayed. Cromwell had stated that the money was paid by the U.S. government to J.P. Morgan and Company, not to the French government, 
There were other details in Cromwell's account that did not align with Roosevelt's claims as well, and the world called for, quote, the Congress of the United States to make immediately a full and impartial investigation of the entire Panama Canal scandal. Theodore Roosevelt, who at this point was still president for a couple more months, sent his response to the world's claims directly to Congress on December 15th, and that was published in Papers Nationwide, and it read, quote, In view of the constant reiteration of the assertion that there was some corrupt action by or on behalf of the United States government in connection with the acquisition of the title of the French Company of the Panama Canal, and of the repetition of the story that a syndicate of American citizens owned either one or both of the Panama companies, I deem it wise to submit to the Congress all the information I have on the subject. These stories were scurrilous and libelous in character and false in every essential particular. It is idle to say that the known character of Mr. Pulitzer and his newspaper are such that the statements in the paper will be believed by nobody. Unfortunately, thousands of persons are ill-informed in this respect and believe the statements they see in print, even though they appear in a newspaper published by Mr. Pulitzer. These stories need no investigation whatever. They are, in fact, wholly and in form partly a libel upon the United States government. The real offender is Mr. Joseph Pulitzer, editor and proprietor of The World. While the criminal offense of which Mr. Pulitzer has been guilty is in the form of a libel upon individuals, the great injury done is in blackening the good name of the American people. It should not be left to a private citizen to sue Mr. Pulitzer for libel. He should be prosecuted for libel by the governmental authorities. And that is exactly what happened. The U.S. Attorney General Charles J. Bonaparte began criminal proceedings against the Indiana News and the New York World, and the D.C. Grand Jury handed out indictments on February 17, 1909. Pulitzer's Umbrella Company, Press Publishing Company, Pulitzer himself, and editors Caleb M. Van Ham and Robert H. Lyman were all named, as well as staffers from the Indianapolis News and the paper itself. United States District Judge Anderson ruled against the government, and he made some interesting remarks in his ruling. He stated that, quote, the circumstances surrounding the revolution in Panama were unusual and peculiar. The people were interested in the construction of the canal. It was a matter of great public concern. It was much discussed. He mentions that after a route through Nicaragua had been recommended by an appointed committee, suddenly Panama was favored. And he went on, quote, Up to the time of that change, as I gathered from the evidence, the lowest sum that had been suggested at which the property of the Panama Canal Company could be procured was something over $100 million. Then, rather suddenly, it became known that it could be procured for $40 million. There were a number of people who thought there was something not just exactly right about that transaction, and I will say for myself that I have a curiosity to know what the real truth was. But then Judge Anderson quoted the Sixth Amendment, quote, In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state or district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law. Basically, because the world operated in New York, seeking an indictment in the District of Columbia had been the wrong move. 
Roosevelt's attorneys had sought indictments for criminal libel from the federal jury in New York's Southern District against Press Publishing Company and one of the editors on the basis that the world had sought to, quote, stir up disorder among the people. Meanwhile, the world's attorneys sought out records in France and in Panama to try to show that the reporting that was being done was based in trying to discern the facts of the deal and whether corruption was involved but they largely ran into the same kind of problems that their British investigator had. The French government was pretty uncooperative, and it could not, it said, compel anyone to give statements or testimony unless they actively wanted to. But ultimately, none of these problems of never finding out exactly what happened mattered, because it once again came down to issues of jurisdiction and interpretation of the law. The judge who ruled on the matter disposed of the case. That was how he put it. He stated that territorial jurisdiction was merely a convenience. The bigger issue is revealed in this section of his statement. Quote, Now it may be, as it has in the past been thought, that under some circumstances the crime of libel might be considered to impair the authority and interfere with the efficiency of the government of the United States. But so far as I know or am informed by counsel, this thought has not found expression in any national statute now in force. In other words, there's no federal libel law, so the suit was brought on faulty grounds. This was a moment that a lot of newspapers celebrated because it felt like a big freedom of the press thing, but there was still some fight left on the matter. In October 1910, the ruling was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Roosevelt and Taft might have believed that they would finally get the justice they sought, but the headline on January 3rd, 1911 in the New York Times was, Supreme Court ends Panama libel suit. And the opening paragraph stated, quote, by unanimous decision, the Supreme Court of the United States today decided that the federal government could not maintain the so-called Panama Canal libel suit against the Press Publishing Company of New York in the federal courts of New York. In so holding, the court affirmed the decision of the Circuit Court of the United States for the Southern District of New York, which had quashed the famous indictment. That same article included a statement from The World, which was, quote, there is no federal libel law to muzzle American newspapers. Freedom of the press does not exist at the whim or pleasure of the President of the United States. It is at the mercy of no steward of the public welfare. The great constitutional issue involved in the Roosevelt libel proceeding against the world is settled for all time. In another statement, Pulitzer said, quote, the decision of the Supreme Court is so sweeping that no other president will be tempted to follow the footsteps of Theodore Roosevelt, no matter how greedy he may be for power, no matter how resentful of opposition. Here's the thing. While Pulitzer was a central figure to all of these proceedings, he wasn't present for any of it. Really, truly not present. He had not been in the world building, and he was on his yacht. He had released a press statement at the start of all of this hubbub saying exactly that, quote, So far as I am personally concerned, I was at sea during the whole of October. And in fact, practically for two years, I have been yachting on account of my health. Mr. Roosevelt knows this perfectly well. He knows I am a chronic invalid and mostly abroad yachting on account of my health. As an aside, 
the nature of his health issues seems to be kind of all lumped under the umbrella of nervous disorders, which was so often invoked in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Pulitzer was obviously prone to working to the point of exhaustion, and he was definitely prone to depression. He did lose his sight, and he reportedly had developed an extreme sensitivity to sound. But specifics beyond that, what made him refer to himself as an invalid, are a little bit tricky to pin down. Doctor after doctor seemed to just see him and then prescribe him things like rest, massages, quiet time, etc. When Pulitzer had questioned the editors at the World about the stories, he had learned that they had run them, making these claims against Roosevelt and Taft based on no evidence, just the accounts of people whose stories could not be verified. He had known the pieces were running, but he didn't realize they had no authentication. He was mortified privately, but publicly he stood by his paper and its words and worked on the ultimately successful defense. That part just kind of blows my mind, where he's like, you did what? Well, I guess we have to defend it now. (laughs) Uh, We are going to talk a bit more about Pulitzer's nervous disorder, as it was called, and the way it impacted his life. But first, we're going to hear from the sponsors who keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you someone who's developed a keen awareness of life's nonsense and found their way around it? Someone who zigs when the rest of the world zags? Someone who doesn't put up with life's yada yada? If you're nodding your head, yes, then it might be time to check out Metro by T-Mobile. At Metro, there's not a yada yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada yada yada. Outsmarting yada yada means things like avoiding those surprise subscriptions. I definitely ordered a one-time Valentine present recently, and then I got an email thanking me for joining their subscription program. Not a thing I had even realized I was doing. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and not a yada yada, helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. 
Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. One of the things that came up a lot in my research on Charles Chapin and pretty much any time I've read about Pulitzer is that, you know, any of the people that worked for him, for Pulitzer were often getting telegrams from him that came from all over the world. And this kind of makes it seem like Joseph Pulitzer might have been enjoying his wealth and doing fabulous things. But the reality was a lot less glamorous. He was essentially spending a lot of money traveling from one place to another in search of anything that could help his eyesight or his health. After he and Kate had bought an estate in Bar Harbor, Maine, Pulitzer had a special addition made to the house, which was heavily soundproofed so that he could have some sort of relief. That resulting structure was nicknamed the Tower of Silence. And he spent so much time on the water because it was quieter than any place he found on land. He always had secretaries with him, whether he was at his New York mansion, in his Bar Harbor summer home, or on his yacht, to take dictation at any hour of the day or night as he managed his publishing empire from afar. But this all mostly seems like a really anxiety-ridden and lonely way to live. On October 11th, 1911, Pulitzer set sail aboard his yacht with his youngest son, Herbert, and a complement of staff. They were headed for Jekyll Island, Georgia. But as the boat approached Charleston, South Carolina, the captain decided that he had to drop anchor. There was a hurricane brewing farther south. They were hoping it would clear quickly so they could continue on the rest of their journey. On the second day they were anchored off the South Carolina coast, Pulitzer began to have sharp stomach pain. He was traveling with a new doctor who hadn't really gotten to know him all that well yet, so a doctor from Charleston, Dr. Robert Wilson Jr., was contacted and asked to come out to the yacht. And Wilson determined that the cause of the distress was indigestion, and he gave Pulitzer a barbiturate to help him rest. For the next several days, Pulitzer felt much better, and he reportedly seemed happier than anyone had seen him in a long time. But then he once again started experiencing terrible pain. Kate was summoned from New York because the staff was so worried. That had happened before, but this time she became concerned enough that she immediately booked a seat on a train that was headed south. One of the things Pulitzer often asked of his secretaries and other staff was that they read to him when he wasn't feeling well. It was how he often drifted off to sleep. 
And after having one of his staff read to him from a book on constitutional history, Pulitzer suddenly found himself in serious pain again. Dr. Wilson was once again summoned and once again gave him a sedative. After he had settled in after that, another secretary started to read a biography of King Louis XI to him in German. As the reader got underway, Pulitzer said something he often said to his readers. Liza, gonf Liza. That translates to softly, very softly. Those were the last words Pulitzer spoke. He died on October 29, 1911, at the age of 64. His cause of death was reported as acute angina. While his papers often ran salacious and sensationalized stories, Pulitzer's name today is associated with quality and achievement in journalism, and that's because in his will, Pulitzer left a lot of his fortune to secure his personal legacy. He left an endowment to found the Columbia University School of Journalism. This is actually something he had started working on with school officials years prior. In his will, he wrote, quote, I am deeply interested in the progress and elevation of journalism, having spent my life in that profession, regarding it as a noble profession and one of unequaled importance for its influence upon the minds and morals of the people. I desire to assist in attracting to this profession young men of character and ability, also to help those already engaged in the profession to acquire the highest moral and intellectual training. There are now special schools for instruction for lawyers, physicians, clergymen, military and naval officers, engineers, architects, and artists, but none for the instruction of journalists. That all other professions and not journalism should have the advantage of special training seems to me contrary to reason. And to that end, he had given Columbia $1 million already, and then he left an additional $1 million that his executors would give the school after it had been up and running successfully for three years. He also allocated money to be used to establish the Pulitzer Prizes. These were and still are tied to Columbia University. The school manages the Pulitzer Prizes. In Pulitzer's will, he established the following prize categories, quote, first, annually, for the best and most suggestive paper on the future development and improvement of the School of Journalism, or for any one idea that will promise great improvement in the operation of the school, $1,000. Second, annually, for the most disinterested and meritorious public service rendered by any American newspaper during the year, a gold medal costing $500. Third, annually, for the best history of the services rendered to the public by the American press during the preceding year, $1,000. Fourth, five annual traveling scholarships of $1,500 each. For clarity, just in case you had not already figured it out, in this instance, he's using disinterested to mean unbiased. (laughs) Today, we think of it in a very different way, but that was the intent. Three of those uh, scholarships he mentioned in point four were to go to journalism school graduates determined to be the most deserving, with the intention that they would use that money to go to Europe and study, quote, the social, political, and moral conditions of the people and the character and principles of the European press. One of the remaining annual scholarships was to go to a music student to study in Europe and the other to an art student to study in Europe. There were additional annual awards guidelines in the will for six more categories. $500, quote, for the best editorial article written during the year, 
The test of excellence being clearness of style, moral purpose, sound reasoning, and power to influence public opinion in the right direction. 1,000 quote for the American novel published during the year, which shall best present the whole atmosphere of American life and the highest standard of American manners and manhood. There was another 1,000 quote for the original American play performed in New York, which shall best represent the educational value and power of the stage in raising the standard of good morals, good taste, and good manners. There was $2,000 for the best book on U.S. history and $1,000 for, quote, the best American biography teaching patriotic and unselfish services to the people illustrated by an eminent example, excluding, as too obvious, the names of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) I love that he was like, we don't need any more Washington or Lincoln biographies, guys. And yet we still get them. Still get them. The list of Pulitzer Prizes that exist now is quite different. Current journalism categories include public service, breaking news reporting, investigative reporting, explanatory reporting, local reporting, national reporting, international reporting, feature writing, commentary, criticism, editorial writing, illustrated reporting and commentary, breaking news, photography, feature photography, and audio reporting. And under the umbrella of letters, drama, and music, there are Pulitzers for fiction, drama, history, biography, poetry, general nonfiction, and music, as well as a provision for special citations and awards. Over the years, other categories have come and gone, like telegraphic reporting and uh, explanatory journalism, which now is explanatory reporting. Pulitzer also set up a scholarship fund in memory of his daughter Lucille for the women at Barnard College. The Columbia School of Journalism was founded in 1912, the year after Pulitzer's death, and the Pulitzer Prizes awarded their first set of honors in 1917. Do you also have some listener mail? Uh, Yes, this is from a listener who I'm not going to name. (laughs) (laughs) They have an unusual spelling of their name, and it's so unusual that they're easy to find and they would like to maintain anonymity. But their name in itself is unusual enough in the U.S. that I worry that people would try to do sub-outs of letters and figure it out. Uh, So we are not naming this person, but just know who you are. Uh, They write, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I have listened to your podcast for years, and it has kept me company early mornings while I have been alone working as a baker. It's nice to have other people around at 4 a.m. Even if you are not really there, the company is wonderful. Uh, I am emailing, finally, have been meaning to for a while because I was listening to an older episode about the great vowel shift in the history of English. My name came up. Again, not going to say the name, so we're skipping this next portion. They write, I'm also a quilter who loves cats and nature's also clearly a baker, so I have delighted in all your podcasts on these wonderful subjects and cannot get enough of your history of flowers as well. I have also failed to mention that my father was a history teacher and now I am able to one-up him with certain facts and anecdotes I have learned from your podcast. I cannot express enough how much your podcast means to me. It's been wonderful learning more and more about history not just to one-up my father, but because I truly love how much there is and always will be to learn. Uh, Thank you for all the wonderful episodes. Can't wait to listen to all there are to come. Uh, I wanted to read this specifically because it captures the thing that I have come to love so much doing this, this show, which is that 
there are moments, I think, where both of us have had that thing of like, I don't know what I'm going to talk about next. Mm -hmm. But then the second you start paging through a book, you suddenly go, oh, here are 10 ideas because there is so much history to talk about forever. Uh, We will never run out because we're always making more. So thank you. That's always also a good reminder to me personally. Uh, Thank you so much, our baking friend. I love anybody who bakes, so I really was excited about this one. Uh, If you would like to write to us, you can do that at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you haven't subscribed and would like to, you can do that in the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 